What is up? This is Evan Lovett, and thanks for tuning in to my podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett, an Odyssey original brought to you by yours truly, your host, Evan Lovett, where you may know me from my social media page, LA In a Minute. I'd love to invite you along for a personal and intimate ride as I share interesting facts about all sorts of things you didn't know that you needed to know. Be entertained and informed as I bring you into my mind to see the world through my lens. There's history everywhere, as long as you know where to look. Let's get into it. Yo, episode number 39 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. And this, this is going to be special. We are live from the I Am Studios in the heart of Los Angeles with Estevan Oriel, world-renowned photographer, but more accurately, a documentarian, a man who has captured Los Angeles culture with an eye that's been honed by more than 30 years of intimate exploration in this city and beyond. Estevan's best-known singular work might be L.A. Fingers, but his impact is found in nearly every genre of Los Angeles life, from the gritty to the glamorous, from the street life to the high life. He's worked with Snoop Dogg, Al Pacino, Kim Kardashian, Cypress Hill, Eminem, Kendrick Lamar, Dr. Dre. And his work has been featured in projects for Nike, Cadillac, Apple, but also in the Smithsonian, the Peterson, and Mocha. Stefan Oriel has been described as the Cholo da Vinci. In short, he is Los Angeles. And we have him here in the studio. We're going to talk about how Los Angeles made Estevan Oriel and how Estevan Oriel continues to make Los Angeles. Let's get into it. Estevan, thank you very much for being here at IM Studios. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Your work has been called humanizing, raw, intimate. It's personal and it's revealing, and it comes from somewhere deep inside your soul. So I want to talk to you about your origin story. You were born in Santa Monica to an Italian mother and Mexican father. How did that create Estevan Oriol, the artist? Um, well, I would say the way I was brought up created me. And, uh, my mom and dad were married for the first three years of my life. And uh, when they separated, you know, you usually go with the the woman that's the way the system works you Correct. know so um it was me and my mom all the way till i was like 17 and i would see my pops on holidays or the summertime so there were times where he moved back to san diego he's from san diego yeah and uh that's where all his family is so i would go down there and visit them and uh my pops wasn't uh he pretty much uh just did, did his own thing he was on he he does his own his own path you know the way he's not like locked into you have to work this many hours a day you have to uh have a house you have to have a car yeah you have to have this education like he did his own route and is different than most of my friends fathers so 
my mom was always like the one who was on me you know like do your homework get a job you know do everything yes do everything. one is my wife always says one parent is always the disciplinarian yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So right that's that was my mom my pops was more of the fun guy you know like hey yes. let's go to a gallery let's go to a museum this is let's, when you were a kid so in the yeah. times you were seeing him holidays or weekends or whatever that you were doing this stuff galleries yeah, we were going okay. to galleries museums the beach the mountains and now he's a photographer and we're going to jump into that right but at the time when you were growing up you're a kid you're a child do you recognize my dad is an artist like did, no. did that register okay no okay. he he was the kind of guy that would uh he would jump jobs around you know so there wasn't really like my dad was this when i was growing up my dad didn't yes. become a photographer um until like the 80s and uh you know that's when he became an artist around in the 80s that i remembered and um so it's kind of like my mom was in in my mom's eyes she was like the bad guy and my dad and and, and my dad was the good guy because all we did was like go and play do like play shit you get the fun stuff the yeah, dad the gets, dad gets the all fun the, stuff right yeah but i didn't see it like that to me it was like my mom was like you know like the backbone you know and my dad was showing me all the other stuff it's like they both had their roles so i never as was a like, kid you realized this though yeah i never okay like my mom was like you know it's fucked up like i have to do all this and he just gets to take you to the cool shit and i was like mom you're both my parents i love you both the same like i know that you prior and my mom was disabled when i was yeah. around like six seven years old she went in for a, a back surgery and it was a 50 50 chance you know like everything in the medical world and um they told her, you know, there's a 50-50 chance we could fix your broken back or, you know, it could go the other way. And it went the other way to where she was never able to work again. And uh, she was limited in, you know, moving around her mobility with her back. She could never lift nothing. And, um, you know, it wasn't like she was paralyzed or... or and, and you're an only child. So right. this was... As you're growing up, were you counted on to help her at the home? Like, let's yeah, say, I mean, even things everything. like lifting and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, everything. Get that for me. You know, can you reach up there, grab that for me? You know, like, um, you know, I had all the chores. I was the only kid, so I, all the chores were on me, you know, cleaning shit up. Now, let me ask you this. This is so my mom had a terrible back, too, and that was her downfall the last 20 years of her life. But my mom had this era of pharmaceuticals and by the way i'm not a proponent at all because i feel like that led to the downfall of both of my parents but did they even have something like that in your day for your mom or like how was she even trying to deal with the pain and debilitation of her back uh she she was in pain every day from that point on it got worse to where the last i would say maybe eight vertebrae in her lower back were all fused together there was no cartilage in there at all so it's just like one bone and then they're scraping yeah they're, they're scraping, scraping and she's just like i feel it now because i broke my back when i was 18 so 
I know like a smidge of what my mom was going through and it's it's brutal. Like, you know, like some the the days when the pain is there, it's nobody could understand what what that feels like. So I get it now. Like I understand I knew she was in pain, but I just didn't know what kind of pain. Was it the kind where you burn your finger on the thing or yeah. you hammer your fucking your finger by by mistake when you're hammering a nail, or is it a scrape when you fall off your skateboard and you slide down the road twenty feet? Like there's all those different kinds of pain. But this is a different this is some different shit. And um I get it now and, and there was uh you know what else can you do when you have pain you want to try and you know uh push it down a little bit or something so my mom smoked weed for many many years and uh she was a nurse my mom was a nurse when and that's how she got to the point where she was little you know she was like five feet two 100 pounds so her lifting all these you know big people like you know in their beds and stuff like that that's how my mom hurt her back initially right so that that fucked her up for for to the point where she had to get a surgery ended up going south and then you know she was in pain for the rest of her life and took pills did weed you know like kind of whatever she could she was trying to do anything you're always looking for something in that because pain is not cool if you're if you live with it on a daily basis like i have medical conditions where i have pain one is my back the other one is neuropathy i have gout so you do anything you can to not feel that shit because this shit it, it gets to you you know like you can't sleep i i haven't slept a full night and i don't know how long i wake up all night long with either having to take a piss or you know my back pain or my feet or yeah. leg pain like I get these crazy ass cramps now that I never knew that I could get. Like I, I, I never felt these cramps in my legs. That it's fucking nuts. And you just wake up in like the most crazy pain. So I get it, you know. Like and I, and I know at the point where she was when she decided she was done. Yeah, I, I get it a hundred percent. You know, like I could never hold that that to her. Or you know, um, you know the way the way we had to to grow up. You know, because she was disabled yeah. and I was a kid, and my dad, you know, wasn't paying the child support at that time. We were on welfare and food stamps, and and Medi-Cal. You know, so yeah. um, I didn't grow up with a lot, and my mom always instilled in me to you know be my best. My dad my dad did too you know but when one parent's not there and one's there every day you know yeah you're you're hearing them the most right that's the voice so my mom was always like you know work hard do your best you know she always told me the right shit but i didn't always go that route you know what were you like in elementary school and junior high which is now called middle school uh yeah i would fight you know like if uh you know, I had a name that, you know, people couldn't say and pronounce or they'd fucking make fun of you and shit like that. Or, uh, you know, at at the time I didn't know, but it was like racist type shit sometimes too. You Were know? you angry? Would you describe yourself as an angry kid? Um, Kind of, you know, because, uh, you know, you go to new schools and stuff like that and people are, you know, fuck with you. They pick on you as a kid and I never was really one of the, the ones that you know 
could uh my patience level wasn't that high you know so right. Right. if people fuck with me i'd just be like you know fuck it you know and uh i didn't have a problem with getting in trouble at school i didn't really give a fuck yeah like what a teacher did or in you know what a teacher said or what the you know going to the 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 office you know and sitting there during a the class or going outside and sitting in the middle of the grass you know where everybody could see that you're in trouble like i didn't have a problem with that it's no big deal and um I, I fist fought with three teachers of mine in uh, junior high. Wow. And uh, actually it was four. Two of them got on me one, day, one time and I didn't fight back really because yeah. they're grown ass men and I was fucking like 13 years old and they're, um, you know, fucking one of them, you know, socked me in the face. Wow. Different, different era. Yeah, go Yeah, and, and I got- you getting millions from the from I the I got in district. trouble. Yeah. I got in trouble for that. I got kicked out of school for the week because, you know, I was the fuck up. I was the, the crazy kid yeah, or whatever. And of course. But and to me, I didn't, I wasn't playing the victim either. I didn't give a fuck. Like, I wasn't like, he, no, he hit me. He hit me. You know, I was like, oh, cool. You know, like he, he tried to come at me and he hit me or whatever. And like, whatever. I don't give a fuck. What school? What middle school? Or junior high? I was going to like, uh. Um, there was a school called the Olympic okay. and there was like a school for fuck ups, you know, <laughs> and that's, that was one of the schools that I, that I ended up at and I went to Santa Monica and then, uh, something happened with one of my friends and I got kicked out of, L well, not kicked out of LA. My mom told me, do you want to go to San Diego or Ohio? My, my family or your dad's family? And I was like, my dad's family, you know, cause I knew them the most. So I went to San Diego. What age? Uh, Seventeen. Wait, wait, wait. So your mom's family's from Ohio? Yeah, there's like there's an Italian uh, area out there called Mayfield Heights. Yeah, and uh, you know she she lived out there. Have you ever been back? I've been there. Uh, I think maybe three times, two or three times throughout the years, because you know it's expensive to fly and all that shit back then yeah. so my mom we weren't really going on vacations right. and stuff like right. that with the income that we had okay go back just real quick to the school what kind of student were you back then well, i was a fuck up you know like i was the kind of guy that didn't uh try my hardest you know i was i was more i was kind of like a class clown too like I liked having fun in class and making you know the kids laugh and we would do some pretty vicious stuff and like I think about it now and it's like man I, I, you know it's probably not even shit that I could say you know that that we would do to like teachers and stuff like that because it's not it wasn't cool you know now that I'm older yeah I probably you know like uh it, it Again, it was a different era too, oh, though. So let, let's just let's just get that straight. Okay, real quick, back to your mom for a sec. Go for it. Is it true she had a six four Impala? Yes. Yeah, my mom had a. Uh, it was a white car, and I had a picture of it. But when she got sick and older later on in her years, she, uh, she, I don't know what she did to all my childhood pictures, but she either threw them away or burned them or whatever i don't i don't really know the the story mm. she just told me one day that they were gone and um but i had a picture of me 
wearing some vans some uh 501s and some boxers with, without my shirt on and there's the white 64 behind us and i think it was over there off of a uh, uh berryman and like culver there was a these apartments that we lived in right there and um i was standing in front of it that's bad and that's, man, that's one of the or foreshadowing yeah, the, yeah that's one of the pictures like of all my whole life that i wish i had and uh then uh in that car we were turning into a like a strip mall at the we were going to the market or a donut shop or some shit and in this van it looked like one of those old rape vans you know Fuck. like the dodge yeah. rape yes. vans or like an econo line something like that yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like this smashed right into us in the rain and and totaled the car and you know you didn't wear seat belts back then but i flew from the passenger side over my mom and hit the window and bounced off and you know that was the end of that that impala yeah. but uh <laughs> Yeah, my mom had a 64 white Impala stock, you know. Yes, by the way, cool. ladies and gentlemen, that is, that is definitely foreshadowing. Okay, I don't want to spend too much time on San Diego, but I think it's important. Okay, so you went with your dad to San Diego. Now, he was raised, if I'm not mistaken, by your grandmother, Angela, yeah. Yeah. Who, who had 10 children of her own, yes. including your dad, yes. in Vario Logan. Um, is that true? Around there, yeah. he There was like... Uh, my grandma's house towards the end was like uh, Golden Hill, I believe, but they lived around Logan and Sherman. Which, if I'm Diego. not mistaken, I'm not a San Diego historian, but if I'm not mistaken, that's one of the more, let's just say, complex areas in the sense that that was essentially redline, what we'd call in L.A. redlining, where they kind of tried to force all the, the Latinos into, to that neighborhood right yeah. and it was like industrial yeah. seaside but right. like it was kind of cordoned off yeah and that sort of became i don't know i don't want to say an inspiration but that made your father right yeah. at least like what he became to an extent yeah that that made my dad into a community a community organizer and activist yes and he got involved in this uh a place called Chicano Federation yeah. and it was based in Chicano Park and um he got into the you know his whole thing was um you know opening up a place in his whole thing was that neighborhood was basically like industrial uh junkyards canneries and there was a lot of stuff that wasn't safe for the people that were mixed in there in the residential section so he would go around to like junkyards and the canneries and stuff and 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 like try to clean up the neighborhood because it wasn't safe for their kids going to the schools and the old people you know they'd have yeah. to yeah you know walk around different shit that was just thrown so my dad's and his uh friends you know their their mission was to clean up that area and also have an opening from um chicano park to the bay it's important yeah right so symbolic so, and literal yeah because every other neighborhood that was on the seaside Could had access, access to the water yeah whereas in logan they couldn't you know so he was part of that whole movement 
Um, is your dad, your dad was born in the United States? Yeah. Where's his family from? Uh, my, where he was born? No. Are, is his Oh, Aguascalientes. Aguascalientes. Okay. Okay. So he was uh, one of the first ones born in, it was in, uh, in Indio, but uh, they ended up in San Diego and uh, he had a, they had a house that was where uh, one of the, like over there by uh, Logan, where there was a uh, the five freeway. They were gonna build the five freeway, so they they uh, displaced them and put them, you know, into. They took them out of their house and I guess gave them like a couple yeah, thousand bucks or whatever. Pittance, a pittance, yeah. Yeah, like here, get, you know, go get another place to live. Good luck. You know, yeah. we, we got a freeway. Eminent domain, folks, yeah. We got a freeway to build. But don't worry, I'm not going to tell anybody, no. hey, don't drive on the five freeway because, <laughs> you know, my dad's family was displaced, you know. Yeah. Um. And, you know, that's that was kind of like what started him doing photography, you know, like uh, – he he was getting people to shoot that those scenarios that were down there that you know they didn't think was cool for the uh neighborhood yes and then it turned into where sometimes those people would be busy but some it needed to get shot so my dad would got a camera and started shooting himself and that's how that whole thing started and then he realized that he liked it and he liked what he was seeing when he was shooting because it's like you know, you're capturing seconds of time, you know, during like the, the the protests and stuff like that back then. So you're capturing seconds of 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 a of a thing happening, you know? Are you seeing this? Are you witnessing this no. at the time? Okay. No. Okay. I okay. I didn't even I didn't really know until all the shit that he had photos of until he gave me the camera and I started showing him my photos and he was like, oh yeah, I have stuff like that. I have stuff like that. And he would show me his photos. And I was like, oh damn, like oh. this is cool, you know? So we were comparing notes. That's dope. And um, he had shot a lot of cool shit and I was like, damn man, you know, I had no idea. You know, I, I, knew, I knew he'd taken photos here and there, but I had no idea. It, you know what he had and especially now what he has you know like if you go back in time like when i do photos now i don't think of i gotta hurry up and go home and and either uh, develop this film or have it developed or or uh you know download the card so that i can post right away you know like that's the yeah. last thing on my mind what i'm thinking of is in 10 or 20 years what's this photo gonna mean and you know, like I, w I was, I had this thing about me where I would always like to take my old school cars yeah. and put them in like old school places of LA, like landmarks or nostalgic looking places like uh, the old hotels downtown. Yeah. I put my 47 in front of there, you know, trying to like make it like uh, congruent in time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's but there'd always be like a fucking Prius or something parked, <laughs> so it kind of throw it off, <clears throat> and then I would I would like be struggling like, okay, if I just move like a tiny bit more, can I see the bumper of that fucking ugly car? And then I'd be like, okay, yeah, perfect. I got this shot with my forty-seven fleet line in front of that cool hotel, and the Prius isn't in the shot. And I had this thing where I always would do that, 
and then I started thinking like when I'd go back and look at my old pictures I was like well fuck there was like these other kind of cars that now those are cool because they're old and I should have shot them you know at least shot a shot with my car in that car yeah so now I'll shoot my car with the you know the cool old car in the fruit cool hotel or liquor store or whatever yeah but then if there is like a prius or you know a, a tesla or something now i'll back up you know five more feet and get that car just to show at that time this is what kind of cars were rolling when i was doing that photo yeah so now i i do both yeah i get the cool shit and then i show the the document the time of when it was so there's and i'm skipping ahead but that's kind of a juxtaposition right, right. which is a huge theme in your work yeah. like and that to me that's always something that sort of made los angeles is yeah. because everywhere you look is a juxtaposition something right. that's uh, i don't know what's the word anachronological i don't know something that's out of its time and place yeah but that's what sort of makes L.A. Tell me about that for a second. I want to get back to the chronology and the origin. But tell me about that for a second. Because, again, to me, that's one of the coolest things that, like, in, in an Esteban Oriol photo, like, a lot of times you see those elements of the old classic L.A. Sometimes those are disappearing right in front of our eyes. Right. And then something modern, new of the culture. Tell me about that. Well, it's kind of like... Um back then it wasn't called gentrification you know yeah. but that's basically what you know what it was and you know there'd be a cool old school building and they'd be they level it level whatever it was next door and they'd pop up a new one but i didn't want that shit in the photo because i i thought it was you know i like historical looking stuff you know like other cities in the world preserve that kind of stuff whereas here we don't give a fuck dude the just, city of tomorrow yeah, always all oh, right rip down it doesn't matter if it's a iconic or legendary nope. place nope. or what's next what's next we just yeah like let's you know flatten it to the floor and and you know there 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 could even be ways like i had a friend who hated gentrification you know he's like mr anti-gentrification and he had a house and on both of his, uh, they call them um, uh, McMansions. Yes. So dude. on each side he had a McMansion and then he had his old house that was built in like the 20s in the middle. So if you're looking across the street, you see these two, like two to three story dude. modern houses. Yes. And then you see his old little one one level Craftsman house. Craftsman or Quote right. unquote Spanish style. Yeah, 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 yeah. Two two bedroom, one bathroom house. So uh, he was like, he was coming into some money and he was like, I want to build me and my lady and my kid a pad in the back and I want to have my mom and my brother in the front. And I go, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, you know, how are you going to do it so you're not, you know, it doesn't fit into the gentrifying thing. Like now you're, Ooh, you're, you're one of them. Yes. Yeah, you're yeah. like leveling up your your place. You know, you're you're adding value to it. And he was like, he got mad. He was like, "What? We no, no, homie." Like I go, "No, for real, dog. Like you're gonna put in a you know another hundred and something grand in yep. the, into your pad, 
because these two pads are worth two million. Your property's worth probably a million, but ain't nobody gonna pay two million to move because you know, of course, because these two guys correct raise the value. Yeah, yeah. How are you gonna compete against that, but not give in to that? You know, so he was like, "There's only one way to do it, and I have to make it look like." it was part of this yeah. originally yeah. so i'm gonna use the same outside finishing i'm gonna do the roofing the same on the outside it's gonna look the same it's just gonna be updated on the inside you know right and right i was like okay that you know fair enough like that's good You're you maintain sticking. that integrity you continue that like i was just at sheets goldstein which was the big lebowski house yeah. um but it was funny because i it's one of the most extravagant houses in LA now, but I was doing the history and when it was first made, it wasn't that, it was like a 2000 square foot house, like pretty modest. But one of the good things that James Goldstein did was extend and build it with the integrity of the original home in mind, which again, if you're going to do that, in my opinion, that's like probably the proper yeah. like way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, that, that's what, um, he hasn't finished it yet, but that was, that's the plan that, you know, that he was going with that, which I thought was pretty cool, you know, because, yeah, he's going to add on a two-story bigger spot yeah. in the back of the property, which will, you know, update it to how the rest of the neighborhood is yeah. as far as what every, you know, because you don't want to be all these people are hooking up their pads, putting all this, you know, cool shit on their property you know in their mind and there you are with your little old you know 1920s two bedroom one bathroom yeah, house and now you're feeling as much as you love that that authentic home now all of a sudden you're driving down your block and you're like oh shit like i'm, yeah. I'm the little man out of the block right right now. all right real quick so let's go back to high school real quick you went to hollywood high no uh, santa monica and then Ooh, san diego okay okay what were your big takeaways from high school um to not be there you know that was like my my biggest thing was to go there the the least time possible and do the least and i ended up graduating with a 1.8 wow grade point average okay. which was a d plus but you graduated i graduated, but you graduated. okay okay with, uh, you know but outside of school i felt like i was living the most life i could live yeah at that time there was um punk rock was big hip-hop was big you know and they were new in in our in our area you know skateboarding was huge you know i used to go all to, these cultures were developing right here in los angeles right yeah so you know it was blowing up everything was blowing up what we thought then you know punk rock was huge there was a big group of punk rock you know kids at school there was a big rocker thing there was a big gang you know circle there was a big uh you know thing with hip hoppers you know so every culture had its little groups in our school but everybody was cool with each other and were you intrigued were you observing these scenes for lack of a for the cultures is a better word were yeah. you what was your like observational tendencies back then because back then you weren't a photographer yet you no. you were so were you just i want the experience i'm trying to have fun right. these people are interesting what was your angle on that my angle was uh you know this is the cool shit you know <laughs> get do it you know so 
we'd go to punk shows, we'd go to hip hop shows, we'd yeah. go to clubs where they, you know, did break dancing. Um, we got into skateboarding, you know, Marina Del Rey Skate Park in like 79, 80, 81. Uh, you know, there was all just kind of different things popping off at that time. Yeah. And I was like, fuck it, I want to do it all, you know, so we were partying you know drinking doing drugs as kids like but like living life there's a there's a thing that i think certain people pursue right and maybe the flip side of this is quote unquote discipline but i almost think there's a certain discipline to wanting to experience all of this right where like certain people are i'm in this culture and that's what i am and there's nothing wrong with that i mean you dive in I, I'm speaking from my personal experience where I want to try everything. Yeah. I want to see what everything's like. Even if I'm on the surface not into punk rock, let's say, you know, I know that there's something there. I know that there's something yeah. and a serious culture and these people that have this passion. I'm like, what is that? Maybe it doesn't resonate in the same way emotionally and like in my soul. But I'm like, no, I want to at least see what that's about. Yeah. And I kind of think that's a, a foundation for you. Uh, becoming a story becoming yeah. a documentarian right so it's like seeing all these scenes and experiencing all that yeah i mean like you could go to a punk rock thing and and go in the pit you know and you know be you know in the pit was crazy back then you know you get punched in the face or you could punch people in the face and and it was out of fun you know it was out of everybody was having a good time then you could go to a hip-hop event and you're you know trying to pop and break dance and that was a different type of thing but it was it's still you you know yeah like, yeah maybe on a friday night you went to a backyard punk party or you went to seven seas and saw a punk show or catheter ground and then you on a saturday night you were at a hip-hop club Fuck. you know so there's all these different things going on and 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 the it was on fire like la was like it was popping, you know, as they say now. How much of that, of your either craving to have these experiences or your ability to be in all of these cultures simultaneously came from you being biracial, intel, uh, Italian and Mexican? And were you conscious of that growing up, secondary? No, I wasn't really, I never really thought about that. You know, I just went with wherever my friends and me, whatever we liked and wanted to do, we did it. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, I had I had all different ethnicity friends. So L.A. Yeah, of course, like, yeah. You know, we had some crazy ass, you know, homie friends. You know, that were either gang banging in the black neighborhoods or gang banging in the white neighborhoods, or I mean, the Mexican neighborhoods and <clears throat> some, you know, the white boys too. Or I had people that were into the to the art world, or I had people into the um sports or you know music you know like there was all these different cultures it felt like it was it was just getting going you know com and it, and compared to now yeah it feels like that was the start of it all you know like in 1986 or whatever when you first heard nwa like yeah. i had a cassette you know that i had gotten and everybody wanted to to borrow it you know to copy i'm like man go get your own shit you know <laughs> but if you had that nwa cassette you were the cool motherfucker dude it's funny because mine 
1989. I'll never forget. I was in elementary school, and my buddy's dad was in Rolls Royce car wash, which I had no idea what that was at the time. I just yeah. knew it. I was like, oh, it's some band or something. But he brought an NWA vinyl record to school. And I remember how cool everybody thought yeah. he was. He was the dopest motherfucker on Kevin. Right. Everybody was like, we're all gathered around white. What is that? You know, especially yeah. being white. You know, I'm yeah. like, wow, what? How can they say that? You know, like shit yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. But that was the cool motherfucker right there. Okay. So at this era though, you're starting to work and you were a hard worker from day one jobs. Yeah. From my understanding, you worked on a fishing boat. Yep. You delivered for a liquor store. You had all kinds of crazy jobs, but the two that I feel like are cited most often are you worked in construction and you were a bouncer, worked a door at, at clubs. I want to talk construction first. Tell me a little bit about that and what you learned, even how you got into that. Um, well, at that time, you know, I was always looking for a little hustle. Like some, I've never had one job, really. I was always, um, you know, doing this, doing that, doing this, doing that. So... At this time, a friend of mine named Zerga, he was doing uh, construction where he either worked on people's houses or restaurants. And he did more kind of like uh, design stuff, but he would do the whole project, like a whole restaurant on Melrose, like, you know, front to back or uh, somebody's house in Hollywood. Zerga Hills. from school? How'd you know this, dude? Partying? Uh, from Hollywood. I okay. knew him from Keep the going. clubs and stuff. Keep so. Going. He was a big corn-fed white boy. He still is, but um, I hit him up. He, I go, so what have you been up to lately, man? He goes, oh, you know, I'm doing all this construction. You know, I'm like working on this house or this restaurant or this, you know, Toyota dealership building the counters, you know, or some shit like that. So I was like, oh, if you ever need any help, man, let me know. He goes, yeah, come, come, you know, come through. So. You know, it's like a seven to three type of job construction. You know, so you got to get up early and you got to be there and that's be real. ready. Yeah, that's ready a real work. vocation right there. Absolutely. Be ready to lift shit, sand shit, paint it, whatever. So that would usually go like seven to maybe five, six, maybe seven in the daytime. And then it, I needed more money. So I started, you know, I was going to clubs as a kid. So I started, you know, knowing everybody that was in the club industry, and people would say like, "Hey, you ever, you want to help? You know, work at the work at the door, or the you know, do like security at one of the." By the way, is this because you're a fairly sizable human being? You're you're a bigger dude. Is that fair to say? And that well, at that time I was probably like one eighty. Oh shit! Okay, okay, one ninety, right, right, but in shape. Yeah, okay. and. Uh, I was down, you know, like I wasn't like the, I was nice, respectful, but you know, like you weren't getting, getting, getting over on me, you know, like, you know, going, going back to the school days, you know, like moving into a new school and kids are fuck with you, you know, like you either, you become, you know, the predator or the prey, you know, and you like the kids are going to either fuck with you or they sense it. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you let them or you don't. And I never did. So you know, that carried that with me through those years. And um, I was always nice and respectful to everybody that came to the club. But at the same time, the people that hired me knew that, you know, they could count on me if something happened, you know? Yeah. 
where somebody had to, you know, stand up to somebody or or say no to somebody, you know, like what what would happen if when you say no you can't come into the club tonight? You're too drunk or you're not on the guest list or you. or you acted like an idiot last week, you're not coming in this week. Like are you that guy to tell somebody no? And and how would you tell them no? Would you be a dick about it or are you going to be cool and respectful to where it's like, "Hey man, last week you were acting a little wild you know the guys the the club doesn't want you to come in tonight you know but give it a couple weeks and then you know you can come back you know you could do it in a it taught you how to deal with people on all the levels here in la right you know you're having people coming in drunk coming in uh on drugs 80s right so you had all kinds yeah uh celebrities celebrities coming in so you had to treat them a certain kind of way you had to treat the the kids of celebrities a certain Mm -hmm. kind of way because they're entitled and they they think that uh you know so and so is my dad so i should be able to come and do whatever the fuck i want with whoever i want however i want and then you just had regular people that just wanted to go out and have a good time. Or you'd have people that uh, came from out of town and this was their first time in L.A. There's all these different types of people that you had to learn how to, to, to work with every, every night that you went to work. You know, I'm, I'm dealing with... interesting. You know, I, I never thought of this sort of perspective because you really are, and everybody sort of wants the same thing. They want to get in that club. They want to right. get around the line. They're fucking way on, blah, blah, blah. And you have to be, you have this discipline. You you have a power. Let's, let's call it what it is, right? right. You're granted a certain power right. at that point, but you can't abuse it. Or you, and I'm saying you personally, you're not going to be that asshole, but it's your... Uh, discretion right. as far as how you wield that right? right so that is interesting and i never thought of it this way and all the lines that i've waited in i'm never thinking like the bouncer sort of needs to know how to interact with everybody yeah. in a different way so that's what are some of the clubs that you worked at can you name any of those names um well they were they were like a one-off type of clubs yeah. but with guys that did clubs all the week you know all the time like um a friend of mine, Mike Messix, he used to, he was one of the first guys that used to do raves mm. and stuff like that. Fuck. And the whole power plant days, you know, with, uh, you know, there was like, uh, uh, another one was uh, the Bolt House Productions, Brent Bolt House, and Brent Bolt House and Tef. I used to work their clubs, um, Papa Willie and, and Opus Lily. My friend uh, Sean Mortensen, rest in peace, he used to do a club called The Last Shot. It was an underground yes. club that we did off of Adams. And like La Brea, there's this theater across from the market. And it was an after-hours only club. Like I used to have to like make sure everybody got in the club, you know, and there's no line so that it was all illegal. We were selling yeah. drinks after hours. So, um, you know, you have to make sure everybody's out the street so the cops don't come by and be like, hey, what's going on here at three or four in the morning, you know? So, um, you know, there's all those different kinds of clubs. Like, I have a bunch of flyers from those. You those kept days. those? Yeah. Dude, I... Luckily, I have a folder of shit that I've kept through every little scene that I've, you know, been See, around. that's a historical document 
that I believe should be shared. Let, let's let's get into that on a later later episode of Elliot in a minute. But I want to talk about your dad for a second again, because my timeline is right. This is around when your dad opened the gallery ULALA, United Latino Artists of Los Angeles. Yeah, is that true? Yeah, it's it about ULALA. ULALA. Oh shit! I and didn't... it was uh, in the late eighties. Uh, one of the first shows he did was a graffiti artist show. And it was, um, it had a guy named Mondo, Slick, Skill, uh, Prime, a couple of those guys. They, Hex. And Hex, yeah, because uh, Slick and Hex were battling at Belmont Tunnel. And my dad was documenting that whole scene. So he wanted to bring graffiti into a gallery but have a message and and mostly not just have guys you know most of the times guys would write their names on the wall yeah but he saw the talent in them and wanted to give them like issues to paint so he would tell them hey like paint this issue paint that issue paint that issue and let them go off and do their thing and that show got a lot of buzz going around you know it was in every newspaper in the city they ended up selling one of the pieces from a, a artist named mondo to the mocha so they they the mocha and this is like 1989 ish yeah, somewhere around there right yeah. so listen like graffiti culture and it is a renowned art form at this point uh beyond the streets you know like the gallery stuff like this but this in 1989, where I remember, and look, I'm again white guy coming from the valley. I remember Shaka, like right. in Van, who, and I knew it was a tagger, right? To, right. To, you know, and I knew used to know people that would like write, but it was a different thing, not realizing the art. So you're seeing that, and this is not just firsthand, but your dad, the artist, at this point, right. you're old enough to realize, oh shit, my dad's a fucking artist, and he's doing this thing that's not just progressive, but he's pushing an art form onto Los Angeles, this city, right. not pushing, but ex ex getting the expression of exposing, how did that affect you or did it, like at this point in your life, did it have any sort of impact on you? Yeah, it had a, a lot of impact on me. Like my dad basically curated that show with his wife. They, they had that gallery together and, you know, like some of those guys I met through my dad, you know, and they're my age. So it's like, you know, I met Slick and Retina and those oh, wow. guys through my dad, you know, and, and they were my age. Is that weird? Honestly. Yeah, of course okay. it was weird. Okay. But okay. it was it was cool weird. You yeah. know, I was like, fuck, my dad's in with the cool the coolest guys so, in the graffiti yeah. world, you know, and like I knew Risky and them back then because I, I even worked the door for Risky for a couple parties he had in Hollywood at his loft and those in those times it was like i don't know man it, it, la was the, the one of the coolest spots to be at in the world i, I still in think those it times in those dude these times come on yeah no, but, but I, I mean everything was just coming together seminal moments seminal yeah. moments right there from and and i could just speak from hip-hop uh from the perspective like you mentioned nwa in 86 but obviously that whole movement and it's funny because jonathan gold who was one of my personal heroes, a food writer, actually started as a music writer and was one of the first, or was the first one to do a feature profile on NWA and kind of expose them to the mainstream or whatever. But 
to see that scene developing. Like you said, the big hair, uh, metal, uh, punk was going crazy, skateboarding, surfing, all this stuff coming from Los Angeles during this era. So this was a pivotal moment in your life. And you were living in Hollywood. Is this correct? Yeah. At that point? Yeah. And is this when you bought your own 64 Impala? Yeah. In 1989 is when I bought my uh, 64 Impala that I still have it to this day. It's it's uh, now called Blue Velvet. But at that time... Let, let me do one little interjection. I apologize. For but for, for anybody who may not know... And obviously, you know, because even I've discussed it in a minute, lowrider culture, this is a Los Angeles thing. This is one of the most important cultures in Los Angeles right now. And it was birthed here in Los Angeles, East L.A., Van Nuys, Van Nuys, where cruising was born. I know people find that controversial, but the cops would crack down in East L.A., but the car clubs, the car culture. But Esteban Oriol is probably as responsible very responsible and there, there's lowrider magazine and things like that but for bringing this for making it from this counterculture thing that the cops would crack down on to make it not just acceptable but an art form that people celebrate because i go down on van nuys and see the the lowriders on sundays and i'm like this is you know this is representative of la I'm talking the people watching and the people participating where it's not, oh, oh, it's this this niche culture, this certain type of people. Like, no. So this is why, I, again, a pivotal moment in your life, you get the 64 Impala, take it from there. Yeah, so I get the 64 Impala. My friend, uh, he bought it because I was telling him, you know, that, that was both of our favorite car, right? Like, I was like, yeah, one day, man, if I ever get some money, I want to buy a 64 Impala. So I found one and it was like 1800 bucks but i didn't have 1800 dollars you know all uh saved up and all that so he had it and he bought the car and kept it for a while and then when i was able to make the money i bought the car off of him for you know the 1800 bucks because he didn't do nothing to it really you know he didn't uh put that much miles and on he it was he whole holding it for you basically you yeah he was holding it for me right there yeah and um you know he knew it was something that that i really wanted and he could do it and hold it for me and you know i've done that for friends of mine to this day so uh around 1991 ish i i uh i had a friend named donnie charles yeah, yeah he passed away in 94 of a uh, cancer and uh he was a, a old school lowrider, and he was also in the in the music industry. Hood Rat Records, right? Yeah, Hood Rat Records. Yeah. He was managing uh, WC in the Mad Circle. Yeah. And uh, quick note: my boss, I had a job as a teller at a bank, Bank of America, and my boss, her nephew, was WC from WC in the Mad Circle. Yeah. So okay, go on. So that's what I was which was a you know a sick group back then. It had a WC from Low Profile. It had a Coolio and WC's brother Crazy Tunes that was yeah. the the DJ and you know he did some of the music. He passed away you know later on, but um, you know so that's how uh, you know like that's how close I was to all these different you know cultures like. Um, I was skateboarding in Marina Del Rey at a time when, uh, you know, it was like Steve Olson, Tony Alva, Christian Asoy was a little, like maybe a year younger than me, but 
he was the one younger kid that had the respect of the older guys because he could he was shredding back then so you know i was around at that time i was around in the punk rock scene when it was going off the hip-hop scene when it was becoming big and then the low riding scene i'd say probably like in the second wave of low riding because you know they did like boulevard nights and you could see if you ever watch boulevard nights yeah you'll see them hopping in that movie and they were like if they were really killing it they were hopping as high as like a beer bottle that's what (laughs) they used to put a beer bottle and like try and hop higher than the beer bottle so you could see where that went from that time to the 90s real evolution you know they're hitting back bumper you're seeing the whole undercarriage of the car and um that's when i started doing it when and it was with my my boy donnie charles i was living on um Waring and las palmas in hollywood hell yeah at this crazy right old there. building it okay. looks like uh the building like you know where like fucking uh you know it looks like a horror movie building it's a lot old, of a lot of those ones out there could kind yeah, of fit that bill yeah, yeah look you know it's one of those sick cool looking old buildings and i had my 64 out there it was kind of like my daily driver, but I also had a little Toyota truck that I bought for 200 bucks from a friend oh, who was like, oh, you know, you can, I, I go, I need a work truck for construction. He's like, well, you can buy that car. It's all fucked up. It's like 200 bucks. And I was like, man, let me take this car to go. He's probably too lazy to put fucking gas and oil in it. So let me take it to this, you know, dude I know. Homeboy goes, man, all this car needs a tune up and you, it'll be perfect. So for like $287, I had a, a truck that I could drive as a full, full-blown full work truck. Dope. Yeah. I had my Impala that I that I could drive. It, still, it had rust, you know, and it. it wasn't painted. The interior was fucked up, but it ran. And I used to park both of those right there at my apartment. And one day Donnie comes over and goes, hey, man. You know, he, he didn't call me man. He called me another word. And uh, he goes, hey, man. Um, <laughs> You, you when do you want to do this low rider and i was like well you know when i get the money because in in my head i had heard how much you know low riders cost to make and i barely could pay my homie for the the car the 1800 so how the fuck was i going to come up with like 20 grand to fuck. get a a paint job interior chrome new engine rebuilt engine hydraulic stereo setup you know all that shit dayton's how was I going to afford all that? I wasn't making enough money. So he goes, that's not how it works. Let's take the car apart. Yeah. We'll put everything in the different shops. We'll take it to get the hydraulics done. We'll take it to the paint shop. We'll take the motor out, have the motor be working on. We'll take the interior to the interior shop, have all that be going simultaneously, but you don't get everything back at the same time. Okay. So you don't need all the money. So, you know, take it to this place, do this, pay them their money. This guy will come then, pay him his money. So ended up dragging out to two about two years. Wow. Low riding, uh, people that work on low riders just take their, you know, like back in the day, low riding was like low and slow. Well, that's how they were working on cars, too, low and slow. Like, it was fucking take forever. But there's a perfectionism to that, though, too, right? There is, but it's not necessary. You know, like, (laughs) 
it doesn't take that fucking long to do the do shit, you know. But okay. but the whole mentality of the low riding world back then was like, hey, hey, Holmes, welcome to low riding. You know, like, oh, your car's been fucking in the paint shop for a year. Welcome to low riding, Holmes. Get in line, you know, or you want, uh, you know, anything you want it done took longer than every other car culture that there was. And it was like the 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 thing that they'd say is welcome to low riding. Let me let me ask you, what was it about? And this might seem obvious. Maybe it is. And maybe I'm, I'm naive. But what was it about? The low rider and the low rider culture that you're like, I, I got to do that. Or is there a moment that you fell in love with it? Um, I would say when I just saw cars as a as a kid, you know, I saw like my cousin, I think he had like a 64 Impala maybe. And I remember like he had the hydraulics the way they, you know, they used to steal them off of the lift beds, off of trucks and stuff. So he had like those type of setups. So my aunt used to roll around like a 74 or 76 Monte Carlo and I always liked that car and there just was different body styles of cars that I liked yeah and you know you see the Gypsy Rose and in um, Chico and the Man and I don't know for some reason those always caught my eye more than like a sports car or a you know any other type of fixed up car for yeah. some reason a hot rod a sports car whatever didn't do it for me it was when i seen a low rider i was like fuck man that is badass it is i gotta have me one of those you know and uh it took five years from the time that i bought it to the time that it hit the streets with a you know car club plaque in it and i was rolling with the homies you know Okay, but before that car club, when you're still a balancer, right? right. You're you're working, and, and let me know if these names are accurate. I'm doing my homework. Ice T, House of Pain, and these are I'm just saying maybe you don't know them yet, but gigs at gigs you were doing. Ice T, Jane's Addiction, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Cypress Hill, and then it was DJ Muggs of Cypress Hill that kind of opened the door for you, kind of literally and metaphorically. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, well, at all the clubs I worked at, you know, there was always, at that time, everybody was going to clubs, and it was, everybody was together in the club, like, you could be drinking at the bar next to this guy in the band, or this guy in the movie, or this guy from the hood, Yeah, and they were all knew each other, and they were all kicking it. It wasn't, there was no such thing as bottle service back then. <laughs> and there was no such thing as anything over $100 in a club. Wow. Wow. You know, like you could get a gram of Coke for 100 bucks. You can get some bag of weed for this much. You could get drinks or bottle. Nothing was over like 100 bucks. Cut. And everybody used to kick it together. There was no, like, there was some VIPs later on, VIP sections, but. Most of the time, it was just like, hey, we're all going to the club, and and it was cool. It was, it was a trip. It was different. Hell yeah. And I remember always seeing, like, you know, hip-hop heads or movie stars coming through, and everybody was always, you know, intermingling with, with just the regular locals that were going to the club or the random fucking tourists that was like, hey, I heard this club was cool. 
but not by uh, an app or anything like that. It was strictly word of mouth. There was yes. no social media. And you you saw things because of a flyer or like a poster on the telephone pole or you knew the cool people or you knew the cool places. That's how you found out about shit. Yep. So I was seeing all these guys coming into these clubs, you know, like the Booyah Tribe, Everlast when he was down with uh, Rhyme Syndicate with Ice-T. Wow. Like, you know, uh, you know, I, I met Muggs in 1989, and he was like, "Hey, let me take you to the to the to the Avenue Cypress Ave to meet the other homies." I met Sendog and uh, Be Real down there. Yeah, and then there was other celebrities that were underage getting into the clubs that I was working at. Through you know, they the celebrities have VIP status in LA. So people at the that own the clubs would want them because then it's a cool they place and more people come. The, mm -hmm. So my mentality is like, hey, if the owner of the club can bring in these younger celebrities in the club and it's cool, I could let my homies that are underage in the club and it's cool because when I was going to clubs, I was underage and it was cool. Yeah, so, yeah. I was like, hey, man, you guys ever want to come down to any of the clubs? I worked at all the cool clubs in, in Hollywood. I got you. And I'm like, yeah, but the homie's underage. I go, fuck all that. Bring him. And, you know, it's B-Real. So I was like, <laughs> bring him through. And, you know, I got it. So they would come to the clubs, and, and we got to all know each other good. And, and I, I kicked it mostly with mugs. And then, like, in 92, mugs goes, hey, man. I got a job for you if you want it. And and so, and I'd been hanging out with him in the whole Cypress thing. So in my head, in those two seconds, first of all, I was thinking, oh, cool, I'm, I'm going to start working with Cypress Hill, and they're the fucking coolest thing out right now. You yep, know? yep. So, um, you know, and there, you know, Booyah Tribe was around back then, and... Uh, they were, you know, coming to the clubs and all that stuff. So they were on one of the songs with on the Cypress Hill album, you yeah. know, uh, Gangsta Riz go, this is a tribe thing, you know. So it was a lot of cool shit happening at that time. So I thought, like, I'm going to be working with Cypress Hill. And then he goes, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I think he saw I was so happy that he was like, he had a, like, you know. <laughs> Let me know, chop, like, chop you down a little yeah, bit. like, yeah, uh, no, 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 homie, it's not working with Cypress Hill, <laughs> but it is a cool job doing the same shit, but with another group I'm bringing out. It's called House of Pain, some white boys, and I was thinking, like, at that time, it's third base and Ooh. vanilla ice, and Ooh. I'm like, I hope there leans more towards the third base, base side, mm -hmm. and it was, it was fucking Everlast from Rhyme Syndicate. And and he's two homies, Danny Boy and DJ Lethal. Big fucking time. And yeah. they're making a group called House of Pain. They had a song and you know, produced by Muggs, Jump Around. That shit, you know, went through the roof. And by the way, confession, obviously everybody heard that song for eons. And growing up, even as a hip hop guy, right? I was listening to like DJ Quick, all this shit in the early nights for whatever reason. I always thought House of Pain I associated him with Boston. Yeah. I had no idea that they were an L.A. band until my buddy was like, yo, dude, like, I forget if it was Danny Boy. I think Danny Boy went to Taft High. In, uh, well, one of them went yeah. to, at, with, uh, with O'Shea Jackson, with right. Ice Cube, by right. the way. And I was like, wait, 
hold on for a second, that's enough. But dude, in retrospect, I'm like, holy fuck, dude, like House of Pain. Because again, like you said, kind of broke through that, ironically, glass ceiling at the time of yeah. like of white hip hop artists. And to this day, that, that song was still make the club go crazy. But anyway, yeah. go on. So you're House of Pain. And this is when your dad puts a camera in your hand. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, he, I was going in between my low riding in East L.A. with my car club to going on tour, doing these promo tours with, with the band. And he was like, hey, man, you know, you're doing all this cool shit. You know, uh, we have an extra camera. You should take it on the road with you. And it was, you know, big big clunker you know so 35 millimeter there were no cell phones just to be yeah. just to be straight there were no cell phone cameras back then right camera was actually a camera yeah Go on. and most people warm around their neck you know and it, to me i always thought that looked corny you know <laughs> right okay, so okay. It was, you know a it does, I mean, that's, or that's paparazzi or whatever so i was like man i don't know if i really want to take this you know it was a, it was a minolta srt2 so it's you know a big hefty 35 millimeter camera and i never carry a camera around my neck really it's very rare that i'll ever do that because i just think that shit looks wild yeah if you're going to tahiti or some yeah, shit but people right, would yeah. just wear them on the front of their neck like it was a gold chain or some shit like that but to me it, was, it looked like a the clock in my head it looked like the clock on flavor flavor, flavor. and he wasn't doing that to be low-key he was doing it to be you know out there to you be know? Flavor, so flavor. Yeah, yeah yeah i was like i don't want to be walking around that with no big old camera on my chest but so i would break it out here and there and i would see the photos i was like damn these are kind of cool you know and, and this is kind of cool do you remember the first photo you took no Okay, but I see okay. some of those okay. photos, okay. and at that time, I really didn't. I would take them to the one-hour photo lab, yes. and it was like you get Hell your yeah. you get your photos developed, and if you did it on a certain day, you could get uh, two sets. You pay for one, you get one set free. Fuck. So I was doing that, and they would have these little. Uh, photo albums that would only hold like four by six prints yeah you know for like a dollar more i could and so i would have these little booklets with all these photos so some of them i don't know where the negatives are but i still have the photos you know you could flip through the no little shit, book huh but then so i don't really know i wasn't trying to be a photographer so i didn't yeah. label it like yeah, i shot these guys i shot this on this date so I don't really know exactly the dates on those until I started going to professional labs and um, getting like what it is is you get a, a developed and processed yeah. and a proof sheet. So it's like process developing proof sheet. And from that, you just get a sheet with all 36 photos on one piece of paper and they're all actual size. So I went from the uh, one hour photo with the you know prints yeah. to these proof sheets, and then I just started stacking them in my in my car in my trunk, and I would I had it in like a milk crate, and I you know because I'd see all my homies that were doing the DJing with and shit vinyl, you know you yeah, you take yeah, the yeah. the milk crates from the alleys and start putting vinyl on there, so I started putting my 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 proof sheets and negatives 
in those was it because you loved it was it because you thought you had talent was it because you thought there was something there or were you just documenting like what what was the mentality at that point i was just documenting but then i saw that there was something there because other people would take cameras on the road like say there's a bus of 10 of us on the on the tour say maybe like two or three of us had a camera but theirs were like um throwaways disposables and so shit i would see their photos and i would see mine and they'd be like hey look at these photos i got from the tour and i had already seen mine you're like oh look at these photos i got from the tour and i'm like what the fuck man these are shit you know like what were you doing were you drunk when you were taking these pictures i wouldn't tell them that but in my head i was thinking like these are the lamest pictures i ever seen and then i would see i'd go i'd go back to mine because I'd see that both of us shot at this venue and this night, and I'd go back to mine and be like, I think I got shots of that, that, that. So I'd go back to mine, and I'm looking at my pictures and go, fuck, my pictures are way different than these guys. And I was like, and the, but they're better. So I started thinking, like, maybe I should do a little bit more. So I, like, eased into doing it more. I became more comfortable with at it. At that point, well, hold on. So, so because I really want to look. This is, like, a true, like, genesis right here. So you're looking at this. My pictures are better, which, of course, they, it, there's some innate talent there. When you're shooting those photos, these initial crop, if you yeah. can. I know it's a long time ago. My memory's shit. But, like... Are you like, because I remember when I was young and taking pictures. I used to yeah. actually be a guy that would take a lot of pictures with these disposable cameras, but they were garbage. I was oh, like, you know, yeah. sel- what we now call selfies. I, you know, yeah. I don't think they call them selfies. But, and they're garbage. If you get five good photos on a roll, I was like, cool, man. Like these, I'm pulling these out, like yeah. throw, throw the rest in a box. But were you lining up shots at this point? Did you understand composition? No. Or was it like your natural eye was just. It, it, you just happened to get good shot. What was it that, that even made you take that time? Or did you even realize that you're getting these better shots until you saw them? And you're like, wait a minute. like Yeah, yeah. It took me a, like a little while till I figured out that I was doing it different than other people. And then uh, I started, because I was a tour manager, I was talking to magazines because I was mm-hmm. the one who was setting up the interviews. Yeah. You know, like the the record label would send me a fax. This old school machine that they used to have back in the day. Shit, right. So they would be like, hey, um, you know, here's your your interview schedule for tomorrow. So, you know, let the guys know that there's four interviews. You know, maybe you could do them at the venue between like uh, sound check and dinner. Yeah. You know, just so there's something to do within those couple hours. I mean, yeah, yeah, okay, I got it. So I would set up the interviews and I would tell the, the magazines, like, you know, I would see, like, say it's four, four uh, publications, I'd give them each 15 minutes, okay. you know, in between the, you know, tell them, like, hey, during this hour, I tell the guys we're going to do press, this magazine, this magazine, this one, this one, 15 minutes each. Most of the time, the interviewer would take up most of the time, you know, talking and the photographer would get like kind of asked out towards the end even think about that right right the guy wants a story so and the story's what sells like at that point journalism was a monster yeah yeah so 
People wanted that information because people read. And there was no internet. Yeah. yeah no yeah, internet, no interviews, yeah. no, you know, no uh, podcast, none of that shit. So people read and that's how they found <laughs> shit out. But with those with those readings they had to have a picture so people could see the visuals of course so i would see these and if they're a bigger band they would get like maybe the cover four to ten pages on the inside if the story was good enough and i would see these photographers struggling like fuck man here we are backstage at a concert there's nothing cool in the background i just gotta shoot them right here and fuck it you know and they would be stuck with in front shooting. of some fucking blinds like, yeah, like the blinds yeah. and the plant and the chair yeah. hey guys uh, uh maybe cover the plant and you know like try to figure it out terrible right right, right. and they're professional photographers they're hired by a magazine they came all the oh. way just to do this so i was like fuck that's kind of fucked up you know so i started telling the magazine guys like hey if you ever need um more photos to fill the story you know i i take some photos here and there i have you know on stage or behind the behind the scenes and they're like yeah yeah sure you know they're like yeah sure dismissive as hell yeah Yeah. the roadie wants to send us his picture you know yeah and i'm like no tour manager motherfucker and i know how to take pictures no but uh so I would give them those little books that I had from the one-hour photo lab, and I'd be like, here's some of my shots, you know? And they're like, hey, you shot these? Like, yeah. So they're like, here, um, you know, we want to use these these right here. Is it cool if we give you like 500 bucks for a usage fee? And I was like, wait a minute, $500? I only paid 25 bucks for this film and the developing, and like 500 bucks, like this is a steal, you know? Like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, here, and I, I was ready to give them the negatives and everything, because for 500 bucks, I'm like, I, and you don't I, know I'm the market, winning all that shit. Yeah. yeah, I'm winning the game. They're like, no, no, we just want these three, and we'll send them back to you. Give us a, a mailing address. You know, we'll send them in the post office. I was like, what the fuck is this business? You know. So I started learning more and more, and I'm like, you know, because I have the photos, so I'm starting to learn more of the the lingo, you know, the, the magazines are talking. I'm like, let me just put that this more into this hustle. So I started, you know, showing more of the pictures, talking to more magazines, and I started getting in the magazines, and it started going from there. And you're honing your craft, though, yeah. at this point, right? So you're seeing what's getting published or what's getting you published. Right. And again, I always say this, and I tell this to my son, like, it comes down to talent. Like, you can work on stuff, and you can practice, but at a certain point, the talent has to be there. So you have that foundation, but are you seeing inspiration at this point? Like, how are you figuring out this? Besides, I want to get paid. Like, and besides the fact that I feel like you're inherently a documentarian, we've already told us you archive stuff, you're, you know, like you're capturing moments and where is, where's that growth kind of helping? What's sparking the growth besides the motivation to get paid? Like as far as the art form? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm part of a hip hop group, you know, I'm, I'm the back end of the, you know, they're the face of it on the back end of it. And, you know, part of that. And so I'm around you know the the concerts the the life outside of the concert 
the shows, you know, like there there was these shows called like um, Jack the Rapper and all these different conventions that we'd go to, new music seminar. Like I'm around those with all the artists, yes. everybody in town in one place, showcasing their their music, um, on tour with all different kinds of bands. So I'm around everything hip hop, and. And we're seeing magazines all the time. We're seeing album covers all the time. So that's my inspiration is, you know, I want to be on album covers like that. And I want to be on the cover of these magazines too. I shoot photos in this genre just like these guys. Yeah. At the beginning, yeah, I'm not as good as them. So it'll, it might never happen or it might. I don't, who knows, you know. How much, how much belief did you have in yourself? As a photographer? Not that much because I didn't care. I had a job. You know, I was making good money tour managing. So it was yeah. like, for me, it was fun. It was for the fun. It wasn't for the money until around like 2005 nah, when okay. when I learned, you know, from 92 to 2005, when Cyprus wanted to take a break from touring, you know, they're like, man, we've been going hard for fuck. all these years. That like, lifestyle, let, let's let's pull back a little. And I was like, well, fuck, you know, they get uh, residuals off of, you know, their I music. All that shit, yeah. I'm not getting residuals off of mm. shit. So I need to keep working. And I knew how to take photos and I knew how to direct music videos. So I was like, well, here it is. There's a moment in time, you know, so that I have to make this decision. Do I go on tour with another band that I don't know and do my tour managing job, which at that time wasn't so, I, well, I didn't think it was great enough to have to be on a, a tour bus with a bunch of people I didn't know. Yeah, fuck, dude. And babysit them and, you know, you're going, you know, you're on the bus with like 10 to 15, 13 people and that's 10 to 13 different people with different everything the way they think the way they and they it's act. mostly dudes and dudes. dudes are fucking oh, adolescent out guys. of control yeah. bro like yeah, yeah that they, lifestyle is ridiculous some of them don't shower some of them don't brush their teeth bro. some of them don't you know they don't have and you're no, a grown man at this point you're not i mean i'm in my 20s so it's not okay okay i'm okay. A, to me i'm a kid because now i see now at my age now i see people that age and i'm like that ain't a grown-ass man they're not handling all okay. kinds of shit they're in retrospect they're yeah. a fucking kid you know so at that time i was we were all just some youngsters running amok you know this guy had that job i had that job but and these are like my my brothers, my family. So do I want to start all over and go and work with these people? Because there's guys that go on okay. tours. That's all they do. They tour with this band. Then they call people they know. And they're like, hey, I'm about to get off this gig. You you know anybody going on tour that needs a tour manager? Yeah, this band. And they call oh, them. And man. and it's a whole That's thing. That's their career. Yeah. yeah, it's their career. You're setting that clock. Oh, and I didn't want to do that. I was like, you know what? I I think I like photography and directing more than I like tour managing enough to where I don't want to. I'll get. I'll sacrifice making that steady income yeah. weekly. But I don't want to work. I don't want to be on a bus with people I don't know. 
So, and, and look, I could relate to that because I went to fucking college and I wasn't about to have a roommate that I didn't know. And that was yeah. one roommate. So a, a bus full of people like. Yeah. These are, that's room, like 10 roommates oh, in tight quarters for like a month to two months. Nah. 24-7. Nah. Even doing it for as long as you did. Okay. But before we go to that, because that is extremely important, I want to talk about. You met Mr. Cartoon at the Easy at Easy's Ruthless Records Penthouse Player album release. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah. And then Donnie, the aforementioned Donnie Charles, yeah, uh, said that you guys were the only two Mexicans at the party, and you guys should know each other. Yeah. Okay, so that turned into, and there's been a lot of ink spilled about that. We know that, but it's a lifelong partnership. Joker Brands, SA Studios, eventually LA Originals. Um, that meeting. That first meeting, at the time, did you know it was special? It was like, oh, it's a cool dude, like, fucking later, maybe I'll see him. Like, yeah. do you remember that first time? Yeah, because, you know, you're meeting, you know, <clears throat> at that time we had already, I had already started working with House of Pain and been on tour a few places, countries. Yeah. And I had a, a, a snippet tape. I had, like, it was a single, cassette single. And it wasn't even in the plastic thing. It had like the cardboard Hell slide yeah, in. Bro, fuck yeah. yeah. So I, I handed him ninety nine cents, dude. Like yeah. I handed him that and I was like, Hey, I work with this group. He was going to Japan and I just come back from there. But he was going to do car murals on lowriders and it was ninety two. So I was yeah, you know, yes, there was J Japanese lowriders in nineteen ninety two because everybody thinks that it's just started now. I see all these articles. It's crazy, but people need to do their homework, man. Yeah. But go on, go on. So I give him this tape, and I'm like, "Hey, I I just came back from Japan. Check out these guys I work with." And uh, he was there with somebody, and and they were like, "Oh, this shit is like when on their drive home, they're like, that shit's lame. Like, what the fuck is that?" And then, but he knew, you know, he he had heard it, and he was like hey that's fucking sick so he went to japan came back i was on tour came back and somehow we connected again and and then you know people are cool you're like hey you want to hang out this time hey this is going on this you know car show or this concert or whatever and little by little you know you kick it and you know you hang out with people have fun and yeah and that bond develops yeah what what was the tape uh jump around Oh shit! Okay, yeah. okay. Tell me about Oishi. Was that was that an important man? Was that an important meeting? Uh, Oishi is one of our homies from our car club, but originally we met him. He was one of the Japanese guys that was coming here, buying cars, taking them back to Japan. Okay, and he was into like higher end sports cars, you know, like Ferraris and that kind of thing, and. But you know, like me, when he seen the low riding scene, he was he was sprung. You know, he was like, "I gotta have one." Just something beautiful, yeah. Yeah. So he moved away from the the high end cars into low riding and started buying low riders and taking them back to Japan. Because over there they had like car lots that you could finance a low rider. <laughs> you know, which was unheard of out here. Dude, There's no such always thing. Always ahead of shit over there. Yes, yeah, man. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he was buying lowriders up, taking them back there. Then we had another guy named uh, Tanaka, and we ended up 
you know, he is, his nickname is uh, Shaw. His name is uh, Tanaka Uish, uh No, wait. How does he say his last name? I forget how how, how to pronounce his last name, but it, his first name is Tanaka. Okay. I want to say his his full name is Tanaka Shoichi, but we call him we nicknamed him Shaw. Okay. And uh. Like Oishi would come over and buy the cars and car parts, Tanaka would come and buy clothing. So very early on in the early 90s, we were in on the whole import-export thing of cars and import-export of clothes, which turned into streetwear. And that's how we got started. Is that when Choker Brand developed? No, that was uh, me and my partner, Lucky, he was one of the guys I used to take to do when I needed an extra an extra hand or an extra person yeah. to work at the clubs or do construction. He was my homie that I would call for that. So um, we were working at a house in Hollywood Hills of a guy that owned uh, a couple stores on Melrose. And that guy had told us, hey, we want to open up a... A clothing store, but with the kind of clothes that you guys wear, like the hip hop streetwear, like Chicano <laughs> style, and we're like, oh yeah, okay, cool. Well, you know, well, what's the deal? And he goes, well, Lucky could be like my partner. He could be the store manager, and uh, you know, basically, he was like a culture vulture. But early on, before they had those <laughs> words, before the term existed, right? Yeah, yeah he was able. To- so like, Lucky could be the the store manager and then i was like okay cool we could do that but when i come off the road and i'm not working as a tour manager and we have those breaks i want to get a couple hours in there too good shit yeah so me and big lux were talking and we're like hey man uh he's like i I need an artist to to draw this t-shirt line for the store it was called supermax and uh I go, I got the perfect guy, you know, we get cartoon in there to do it. And he came in, did these designs. They were all like perfect, you know, exactly yeah, what, what we needed. Yeah. And um, I brought in uh, Cypress Hill and House of Pain merch into the store because, you know, I had that plug. And then we had, you know, we started getting everything else, like the T-shirts, the Levi's, the khakis, the, the shoes, you know, like Chuck's Air Force Ones. Uh, mirror from CBS did a mural in the store, and uh, there was a few murals. I, don't, I I specifically remember the the one that Mirror did, and we were off and running. Lucky, by the time the store opened, the owner was like, "Hey, you're not the store manager. My my nephew, my young Jewish nephew, he's gonna be the store manager of this Chicano hip hop." you know mm-hmm. african-american culture store culture yeah uh and he looks like witty allen but he's gonna be the the face of the store and we're like what the fuck and the dude was you know like five feet he had a bowl haircut yeah. literal oh, bowl, bowl haircut. haircut come on it wasn't i'm sorry i'm woody allen but now bowl haircut no, yeah I'm and then he had the the wire glasses mm-hmm. and everything we're like, how the fuck are you gonna have Woody Allen be the front man of the store, you know? And then you're gonna have Big Lux as like the sales, uh, sales guy walking the floor. Yeah. So that kind of got us, you know, 
it kind of shifted our whole vibe of oh. doing this story you know it was the the classic case you know of of somebody coming in Bait and, and switch bro. yeah exactly so uh oh. i come off tour and i'm like hey what's up you know can i get some hours they're like no you know we got enough with uh woody allen and lucky we got it covered so now i didn't have a, a job to fall back on when i came home so when he wanted to do the second line, we we're like, no, you know that ain't happening. You know we're we're done. Bro. Go go get your own artist. You know. Yeah. And uh, he got pissed off, and you know, thought he was you know he was like in the gym every day, you know, health eating healthy. Thought he could you know he was like a little Superman, and he said the wrong shit and ended up getting beat up over it, and then. Uh, closed that store down and then uh in the process of the store closing uh shaw came and was like hey i want to order some shirts to take back to japan we're like what do you mean take back to japan what are you talking about he's like yeah i want uh, uh shirts you know um you know big order and we're like big order what is big order and he was like you know i uh, like Twenty, thirty thousand, you know, dollars, and we're like, oh, you know, that could pay some bills. Yeah, yeah. So we're like, that's cool, but you know, yesterday's price isn't today's price, you know. So that I think we bumped up the limit to like fifty thousand, which is that? F- nah, dude, okay. it's L.A., bro. So, uh, like, if you get an order for fifty thousand, that's costing you twenty-five thousand. Okay. So we would take half up front, so we're getting our whole uh, production cost. Hell yeah! Up front, so that we could make the shirts because we we didn't have fifty grand or twenty five grand to make fifty grand worth of clothes. So we told him, yeah, no problem. Um, but you know, no more dealing with the store owner yeah, asshole. What else you know, had, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. You know, so we found a guy to basically bootleg the the shirts because yeah. he didn't want to give us the film you know because he's he's being an asshole of course and but we we're like fuck him anyways we don't care you know about your feelings you you shit on us <laughs> and so we went and bootlegged these shirts and uh you know we got this new process done the guy like laid the shirt out perfectly flat had a camera took a picture of the design then made a film then made a screen and it wasn't as detailed and good as the originals but it worked and then that order went good so then that started a thing and so you know that went for a couple years and then when the store closed down me and lucky started a company called not guilty that was good. We were going to the trade shows, you know, like the the four thirty two F and like ASR magic, those type of things. Oh man. We started going to the trade shows with and getting some decent orders and uh we gave the shirt I gave the shirt to B Real. He wore it on uh yes. stage at at Woodstock. So five hundred thousand people were there. And everybody saw it on TV, you know, him wearing the Not Guilty shirt. Muggs had, a, I think, a Southside shirt on. Yeah. I had a shirt on. And, you know, we're we're in there at Woodstock on... Woodstock you know, 94, by the yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
you know, it was pretty, it was a good look. We got the attention of the lawyer, of a lawyer or another uh, clothing brand that that lady had trademarked not guilty worldwide. So I didn't even know that was possible. Right. Yeah. Worldwide trademark. My friend Lucky gets busted, goes to prison. (laughs) Fuck. Me and his wife are running the company now. We get a lawyer, a cease and desist Mm. letter. We go to the law firm. Like we're driving in my car. We're looking around. We're like, oh, there it is. There's the address. And most law firms are like an office or maybe a floor. This place was a whole building downtown. And we're like, oh, we ain't got oh, no chance. Like, yeah. let's go in there and be the nicest we could be because we kind of had an attitude, you know, like. Yeah, of course. Like, hey, fuck that. We're not going to let this push broad, us around. You know, yeah. Shut us down. Went in there and we're like, what if we're, you know, she did pants and like these horrible pants that you could find at like Marshall's or whatever. They're uh, acid wash jeans. Mm. And we're like, what if we do a hip hop section of of the name of your brand and we you know we share it because we'd already done so much work but we weren't educated so we went and we got not guilty incorporated but we thought that meant trademark yeah you know we came home with this big book and this stamp and we thought we were official we're like fucking not guilty incorporated it's on now let's go do this yeah yeah but we didn't know you needed a i think it's uh 25 article 25 of the trademark it's a ridiculous process by the way like a formal fucking process yeah we didn't know about that part of it because you know i had the 1.8 grade grade point average right right. no you're figuring shit out though that's the thing i don't care if you had a 4.5 with fucking uh electives and shit like you you, this isn't common knowledge you gotta figure shit out go yeah so you know we didn't go to business school so we had to learn the hard way yeah and the hard way was we got shut down uh, the lady was like, no. She didn't like the pants. Uh, she was like, no, I'm doing these lame-ass Ashley wash jeans and fuck your hip-hop brand. Fuck you, stupid. So I went back and changed uh, all the stuff to scandalous. You know, all the, oh. the I put all the same designs but changed it to scandalous. And at that time, uh, Everlast was helping us funding the not guilty. But then when it got shut down, it was kind of like, um, I had moved from House of Pain to Cypress Hill because House of Pain didn't want to tour no more. Yeah. So I moved over to, to Cypress Hill and not guilty, it got shut down by the lady. So then Be Real was like, hey, since not, you know, you're not doing not guilty no more with Everlast, you're not working with House of Pain no more. We got Cypress Hill, we should make our own clothing line. Yeah. And I was like, cool cartoon and our homie uh mac mike maddox from uh sucker brand he had they both had joker brand and they went to a couple trade shows and they didn't want to do it no more so they had a bunch of inventory and i was telling them like hey you know we want to do something new and you guys have all that inventory what if we scoop that up from you shit and we 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 take it over and they were like, yeah, fuck it. You know, we don't, they didn't want to lose, you know, having that inventory. Oh, wow. But they didn't want to go further with that brand. So me and B-Real took it, started promoting it, making it, going to shows, all that. 
then Lucky got out of prison, and then because he knew how to do the clothing yeah. from working at the store, managing the store, to distributing it to uh, Japan, I was like, hey, right, you just <sighs> walk right out of basically. Yeah, you yeah. walk right out of prison, walk right into the, to Joker, and let's let's go that way. So then at that time, B-Real was wanting to do different music projects yeah. and he wanted to invest his money into that. So we were like, well, we'll buy you, buy your investment out of Joker. We'll give you the money for that. And you can, you know, go do your music. You don't have to worry about this clothing shit no more. And we'll do the clothing shit. And so, wow. Lucky got, went to prison again. Oh. And w- I, we ended up right at that time we had gotten a new investor yeah and that guy was going bankrupt so lucky kind of was like you know in a bad place and you know partying and stuff here and there and he got busted again and it was at the perfect time that guy was going bankrupt you know he's getting busted and I was like, I, I can't do this again, homie, you know, by myself or working with your wife. Like, I signed up to do it with yeah. you. And, and so he signed off on it while he was in prison. And then I took, you know, Joker myself, went and found more people to invest because I had other homies, you know, that were doing sales and, and designs. So they were like, well, what are we going to do? And I was like, man, you know, I don't know what the fuck to do. Should we just close it up and call it a day or you know but that was their source of income i didn't take a dollar out of joker for 10 years the first 10 years so when ice cube says you know you want to do a business be be ready to not take no money for 10 years yeah that shit's real i did i live that but the i still had a a job so i was getting income but I could live off of that, but my people that were working at Joker, my yeah, designer, my sales that. guy, they needed that, so I just kept pushing it for them. And they were telling me, hey, we could keep doing the designing, because we had a, a big container coming from, from China, and the lady had called me, and she's like, hey, she's Chinese, she's like, hey, I've been, I've been uh, calling your partners uh lucky and he don't answer well he's in prison Yikes, right? i've been calling your other partner irving uh, well he went bankrupt he moved to mexico and they're like okay so what am i supposed to do i have this uh container here in the in the shipping yard it was worth like a couple hundred thousand like maybe two hundred thousand but it was like a hundred thousand worth of merch that i would have to spend to get the container to sell it for the two hundred thousand to keep going until the next year which isn't shit you know because at that time like rock aware and all them were they were shipping like 300 million a year you know right and so like the 100 grand or whatever is like peanuts you know but to us it sounded like uh, like good money you know yeah but you know you break that down to your employees and all that and and the cost of making shit and you know you're making a living but not what it sounds like or looks like on on paper you know absolutely so my sales rep was like i can move all that shit uh and my and my 
my designers like and i could you know when when we sell all that i could be designing the next the next season we could keep this going you know like without that so i was like you know what let's take a chance at it you know so i told the lady like my team's down to do it but uh I won't take no money. You get your money back first, and then you go back to China. Whatever money comes off after that, you know, that goes to me. And she's like, I can't do that. You know, I have to drop off the money. I have to drop off the goods to somebody here yeah. that I know that has, like, a relationship with the Chinese. Oh, so basically, the Chinese couldn't uh, manufacture, couldn't drop it off to somebody that wasn't already plugged in with the... Yeah the whole thing with the with china so she takes she goes i got one person the these people help clothing brands all the time and that was somebody that had burned me before but i told her you know what fuck it let's do it and we'll just go to this point to where we pay them off pay her off and i get my money and then me the designer and the sales rep can go do our own thing and we found a another home for it and uh ended up working with them and then they couldn't you know because it costs money to build these line these Every brands absolutely yeah ended up getting another uh partnership and then that went for maybe 13 years wow and then uh now it's all back to me huh okay okay so now this is an important thing for you for for los angeles the la fingers photo that was shot in 1995 is that correct 94 and i i think uh i started putting it out there in 95 okay so i got two questions for you number one you've called it a blessing and a curse yeah you still hold hold that to be true um yeah because and by the way sorry i gotta say just for people who aren't familiar even though everybody is even if they don't know it it's this latina woman with like these like pouty lips but like she's totally in the background of the fingers that are holding up like the classic like la sign she's got these rings and she's got like these long nails and it turned into one of the consummate symbols of Los Angeles this century. And it really is possibly the art, the photograph that most represents Los Angeles. So I've heard you say it's a blessing and the curse. Where does that stand? And then second, whose hands are those? Uh, you know, the, the, hold on. the blessing is that I've been able to use that image to you know one uh, get into uh that image has gotten me into publications which led into like the covers of magazines yeah and i remember i was telling you earlier like you know as a photographer you want to get into magazines and get covers of magazines like the best you could get big tough so that photo has done that for me and that's translated into you know bigger opportunities to uh one point where i started making merch with it and and that started you know selling good and to this day it does pretty good Fuck. there's you murals know. of it all over the city yeah, yeah there's murals of it and uh the curse is that you know i've been pushing that that image and that that thing for 25 years 
whereas other people just come in and jumped on the bandwagon and didn't do didn't do that work but they just came in and jumped on the bandwagon and uh, for the for the cash you know for the payout but you know there was a lot of a lot of work that it took to build that to what it is you know like yeah anybody could anybody could take a picture of somebody doing the LA or anybody could draw it but they didn't do the work to get it to where it is to where it is that recognizable thing yeah because back then it was it was like not that common you know people would do it but not really and at that time listen it's kind of like the high five okay I, I have the, the high five was invented in Dodger Stadium, 1977. Dusty Baker and Glenn Burke, spur of the moment thing. Glenn Burke was this rookie. He was on deck when Dusty Baker hit his 30th home run. He just out of exalted in the on deck circle and threw his hand up in the air. Dusty Baker didn't know what to do. He slapped it, and that was the first high five. Soon it was on a, uh, a Dodger program, became the sign of the Dodger. But then the high five sort of materialized from there. And you look back and you're like, no. There's no way that the first high five was in 1977. That had to be around forever. And in Dodger Stadium. But, and in Dodger Stadium. It's too like, LA, like yeah. perfect. But the research and, the, you know, even look on the internet as deep as you want. There have been people who have contended that maybe there was a high five before, but there is not a documented high five before that. And in fact, in African-American culture, a low five was celebratory. But my point is with the L.A. Fingers. And I encountered this when I was kind of researching. I'm like, was that really? Like, it seems so natural. Like, millions of people in Los Angeles throw up that LA or have, and there's different versions of it, different photos and different iterations. But it came from this photo, and that was like the moment, you know, that kind of defined that point in your career. And again, blessing and a curse, maybe, maybe not um, as far as the curse, but that's, would you be... Going to your grave, if that's the image that represents you, how oh, for sure? Yeah, like I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take that. You know, like that thing, that one photo is. I mean, people don't even know who took it. It's it's at that point where like young people yeah. don't, and and like whenever people introduce me, they're like, hey. Uh, you know, this is Stephen Orr, and then oh, hi, nice to meet you. He's the guy that did that uh, L.A. that L.A. thing, and they're <laughs> you know they're throwing up like some weird shit. I don't even know what the fuck. Yeah. It looked like they have arthritis or whatever. Yeah. Like, he's the one that did the L.A. thing, you know the, and they're like, oh yeah, no way, yeah yeah, no, I know that picture, and so, you know, like, would would I go to the grave being like that's my you know biggest accomplishment or whatever like you know yeah i'll take that you know do you know whose hands those were uh yeah you know but she she wants to keep you know okay so so on that note now you've done books five books if i'm not mistaken yes. is that correct la portraits this is los angeles uh a dope one called bosu zoku which is about the japanese uh motors cycle or is it about Japanese yeah. lowriders no Japanese motorcycle gangs motorcycle gangs but LA women right and that's why I'm kind of bringing up the LA fingers which uplifting women is kind of one of the major themes of your work as well and some people in a certain light you can be like oh uplifting well they got you know they're naked or they're topless or they got yeah. their bras some on some people say sexualizing you know now yeah. nowadays there'd be like sexualizing women or whatever but 
to me, I was uplifting them, giving, you know, putting a light on them, showing their beauty or their struggle or, you know, the, you know, each photo had told a different story. So, um, you know, some people would say, you know, they go to the naked picture of the girl and think like, you know, that's sexualizing women yeah. and, and I'm a man, I, I, I shouldn't be able to do that. But, you know, those those rules that they're making now weren't uh, around at that point. Yeah, Goddamn like, right. Back then it was uh, a photographer taking the picture of another a human being taking a picture of another human being and it just so happened to be a, a man was taking a picture of a woman which was super common you know in those especially up until, in that low rider culture yeah up until too, like yeah. now you know it was a, it's been common and and women in low riding was you know there was always like you know the car was beautiful enough you know, you didn't need anybody to be in the picture to make the car more beautiful, but they would always like to add a beautiful woman. And it wasn't just in lowrider culture. You could see, like, uh, hot rod culture. They had, you know, beautiful girls posing with the, yeah, with the cars. absolutely, man. Um, car shows, even just regular car shows, man. Like bike magazines, you could see, a, you know, they'd have a nice, you know, their interpretation of a beautiful woman uh posing with a bike or you would see like advertisements you know for regular cars having uh, a woman in the photo so we weren't doing nothing new we were just doing it our version of it and, and you're filming and again this is ultimately what makes the Stevan Oriol. this is real los angeles these are real people you're not like yo i'm having a modeling shoot who's going to take off their clothes let's go let's shoot that or yo yeah. you need to take off your clothes and that's an important thing, transitioning from that, is that the people of Los Angeles, you've said you're, quote, interested in the darkest shit in life. And a lot of your work has had to do with the gangs, homeless people, addicts, vagrants. This might be, and I just came from Skid Row. I did a, a podcast episode. I spent a day down there, which is, again, it's just one day. I'm not trying to be like, oh, I'm this insider. No. But that's Los Angeles because there is so much history there. And like, let's just take Skid Row, for instance. Started has its seeds in the 1890s in Los Angeles. And L.A. didn't even really turn into a city city until the 1850s. So Skid Row's been there from the beginning. And from since the 1930s, it basically is what it is, a containment zone. What about that draws you and what impact on your work has that had throughout the years? Um, well, what draws me to it, I would guess, I would say, like, I was listening to your podcast earlier, and you're like, yeah, I went for a day in Skid Row, and I was like, well, that's, that's cool, and, um, I, I like that you walked, you know, through the streets, yeah. which most people, if they do a story on Skid Row, they'll go and, like, find one person that's, you know, uh, willing to talk to them and they'll that's that's the story you know like yeah. they get their their version of what skid row is but let's print it yep but to me like you have to go in there and feel it smell it walk it Fuck. you know and that's where you really feel what skid row is you know like going you know like 
try and go into one of those tents and see or just see all the rats running around or fucking step in some shit or, yeah. you know, really get that fucking Skid Row vibe to really know what it is. And we uh, we moved down there in the mid-90s. This is SA Studios for uh, Soul no, we just, for Like I moved there, Cartoon moved there. Okay. And we had like uh, like artist lofts, they'd call them now. <laughs> but it was like, it was just an empty room and yeah, it wasn't yeah. that dolled up like they have now. You have to go in there and, you know, start from scratch. It's like an empty slate. And um, I mine was... Uh, half where we did the where we had the, the t-shirts and the other half was my bedroom kitchen and and uh and bathroom all in one one room so we moved down there at that time and at that time where we lived it was industrial and homeless yeah. was, is what what was what was there and um so when the people were done working at three or five o'clock and they went home, it was ghost town. And the only people that were around was anybody, any artists that lived around there yeah. or homeless people. So we became familiar with the homeless people, you know, like from day one you do, you know, you're, you're, you're in there. It's your neighbors. That's your community right there. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, at that time too, I was shooting a lot and there it was because it was, you know, um spacious there wasn't a lot of people around and stuff on the weekends like oh man you know i would shoot some low riders with the sixth street bridge in the background and it just the old sixth street bridge yeah, yeah, the, yeah the original one and it just looked cool you know so i was starting to do photos and then like you know homeless people would come around and they they would talk to us and um you know when you first get down there you're kind of like uh you know they're homeless they're dirty they you know they're not showering they smell they might have shit in their pants and didn't you know change or whatever so first you're kind of like standoffish you know of them but before i got downtown i've had family members that were homeless so right. it wasn't like you know these people are like lepers to me they're just people that went we're going through something and had something that didn't go their way and that's where they ended up i think that word transient i i didn't really understand it until i was down there where i'm like wait man like this isn't where people go to die like they're trying to figure something out and that is a community right there and and I, honestly i looked at it where i'm like well that's the last resort and that's where they kind of end up and that's yeah. it but it's like, no, like, again, like I said, appointments, uh, cell phones, like tr doctors, you know what I mean? Like trying to get jobs, like stuff like this. So it's like, it's a community and maybe they ran out of, out of options outside of there, but there's still like, no, there's a humanity to it that you got to kind of understand and respect like while you're down there, but go on, sorry. Yeah, so like working at the doors, how I was telling you, like yes. there's all these different kinds of people, like I always treated everybody with respect and I was cool with anybody, you know, until they, until they presented something else. So even with the homeless, I was always cool and respectful to them. And, you know, you chop it up with them and then, you know, I, I take a few pictures here and them, so then I became friends with some of them down there and I, I had this little uh, kind of like a little archive of 
the people that I was shooting that was around that area. And then uh, as years went on, we started doing better and becoming like successful. But at the same time, we always felt like, um, you know, if we're doing good, we, we got to help other people. And so one of the thing was well, like, we're doing better and we live in fucking, at that time it was like Skid Row, but now it's called the Artist District. <laughs> but there wasn't, you know, none yeah. of that shit which you see down there now is straight, you know, homeless and, and industrial. Yep, yep. So our whole thing was let's help out the people that are around us, you know, and, and, and we're not just helping out people that are, don't have much we're helping out people that don't have anything yeah and it was it was it was organic for us it was like nothing you know like hey we live here these people are doing bad we're doing better than them let's you know it, it doesn't take much to you know give give a little something to them you know we were giving a little something to them every day you know yeah. at first people when i first was around people that you know were homeless or whatever They'd be like, hey, man, you got a dollar? Let me get a dollar. Let me get some change. Now it's like, you know, they're starting off at 10 bucks. You know, they want to, they want enough for a, a farmer brothers, you know, <laughs> combo. Like I told the fool, like, hey, let me, let me take you to McDonald's, get yeah. you the, the combo for like $2 or whatever. He goes, I don't like that, that one, man. I want the farmer brothers. I'm like, damn, all right, Dude. homie. Like, you want the farmer brothers? Okay. But, there was a point where we were doing these you know now they call it community outreach yeah but we didn't we didn't know what we were doing we were just buying a bunch of food the circle program for, they call it now go on go on yeah for homeless people and we would do it around the holidays because you know we were figuring like everybody's wants to give around the holidays yeah. what why do we want to give people who have so much more let's give some people that don't have so much something so we would go and buy you know like 500 to a thousand dollars worth of like hamburgers wow. and stuff and there was no social media we weren't getting out there for yeah, the cloud hashtagging to get that nothing. PR, we didn't give fuck, a fuck yeah, yeah we rolled up with some homies and two or three cars be like hey homie you know follow us in that car we're gonna go feed the homeless what do you mean feed the homeless we're gonna we do this thing where we you know buy like 500 hamburgers and you know some shit still burritos whatever it was and we go down and feed them and it always felt good you know and it was you know you're looking at people that don't have nothing it's sad yeah. you know and you could tell at that time even you could tell there was a little bit of schizophrenia and like mental health <sighs> issues and it's a lot of it you it's know there's we didn't know what it was but we we're seeing it and we're like hey man you know, this is the least we could do. And so we started doing that like every year. And then we noticed that people were coming down there and they would only go down there during the holiday season. So we're like, you know what? There And and, and the, the homeless people were like, hey, I, I can't get a, another free meal. Like, where the fuck am I supposed to keep it? I live in a tent. There's fucking rats Fuck, there. yeah, no fridge. There's no refrigerator. Yeah, yeah. So they could only eat so much. But there's like hundreds oh, of fucking man. van loads of people this. taking yeah. food down there every fucking uh thanksgiving every christmas so we're like wow. hey let's do it on another day just on another day like doesn't have fucking to be june 2nd and shit yeah, yeah it doesn't yeah, have yeah. to be any special time or day of the year 
and during the summers we'd go buy a bunch of uh waters and shit from costco or whatever yeah. and just go put it on the back yeah. of a truck hand out water and it wasn't for we didn't want nothing we didn't want no no we didn't want to be noticed for doing it we didn't we didn't give it's a from fuck. compassion and from your heart and from your soul yeah which is what comes out in your photos and listen i know we've been going crazy extra time i'm gonna run it i'm gonna consolidate this end so this is kind of like a speed portion right here yeah no problem okay as we close it out you've had some quotes that have resonated with me and i want to know just a couple if you can add anything to these all right downtown is the pulse of the city the heart of los angeles do you still feel that way definitely like uh even with gentrification now now more than ever because there's like i said back in the day that downtown was becoming kind of like uh empty kind of like hollywood was uh was the live area that's when i grew up yes the beach cities were the my dad used to even tell me he's like why are you going downtown there's nothing there yeah yeah yeah. yeah. there's just a bunch of empty buildings and homeless people and shit like that and and you could buy shit down there for cheap like cheap (laughs) uh fabric cheap clothes cheap uh flowers cheap gold so there was really nothing to go down there for for most people. The people from the east side didn't want to go to the west side for like art shows or whatever. And the same with people from the west to the east didn't want to go. You know, to, they had their own. Everybody had their own thing in their own area. Yeah, yeah. And downtown was kind of like in the middle of that. So there was kind of like you know everybody said, "Why are you going downtown? What's downtown? Why do you live downtown? Yeah, down this grimy down there. Blah blah." And I was like, you know. I love it, you know. I loved it then, and I love it now. I mean, even though now it feels like it's more populated with a bunch of people, uh, transplants, people from out of town that just come in and move in. They want to be in the cool area. There's, you know, probably 50 times more homeless people down there. So it's like now it's like why do you want to go to downtown there's nothing down there there's nobody there it's just a bunch of a couple businesses here and there and it's like you know like ghost town down there and now they're like why do you want to be downtown there's a, just a bunch of people and a bunch of homeless but to me it's always been like that heartbeat you know it's the it's the the heart of la i feel like it's like the everything you know spreads out from there like you go this way there's the beach you go this way you're south central you go this way you're going up northeast la up north you go more east and there's the mountains and the desert you know like everything branches out from there even almost in a spiritual sense it's like look alvera street quote unquote the birthplace of los angeles right. that's real the first even the house indigenous people i believe it's called yangna like their village was there there's something about that area so i love that okay um this another quote of yours at the speed everything is being built out and changed and in 10 years it'll change again other places have it other places meaning other cities haven't changed as fast and as much is that a draw of los angeles or is that something that you kind of like oh man like a slow down let's enjoy it let, let's cherish the the past and the history more or is that what makes la no, I would love to slow down and cherish and enjoy, you know, L.A. the way it is. But 
at the same time we have to keep up with technology and that's going at an all-time high you know like you see like what what's going on with ai like they had that movie promotion of the ai like robot people at the chargers game that one day i saw that on on the news i was like oh it's over now (laughs) like they they're starting to integrate these people into the into the stands and in the at the oh, games. Oh man, dude! I didn't know it was a movie promotion. I was like, "What the fuck?" But you know, we have to stay updated with with the times, you know, because I'm the king of uh, of not jumping onto something, and you know, like when it's time for everybody switch to digital. Yeah, I didn't switch. I stayed with film. Yeah. I kind of lost out on that, you know, on that moment when, you know, if I would have done it when everybody else was doing it, I'd be ahead of the times, you know, for in that. The same with social media. I was like one of the last people to get on the whole social media thing. And then I noticed that people were using my name, you know, like on Instagram, I didn't, I wasn't the first one to have a Stevan Oriole. There was somebody else that had it. There was somebody else that had Joker brand. So I had another friend of mine say, hey, you should just go on every app when they come out, like every social media. Just get yours. Just get your name. You don't have to do it. it, Just get your name. So, you know, of course I do that, but it took me a minute to get caught up with, you know, with everything that's happening because I do like to enjoy the cool old school shit. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like if you don't stay with the times, you're gonna get lost in the sauce. So, and LA kind of, kind of magnifies that to a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we're one of the biggest cities in the world. We're one of the richest cities in the world. We're one of the 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 ones that start, you know, like fashion, art. We're we're the number one place for like uh, automotive and car, bike culture. You know, like this is where everything is fashion art movies cars food you know we have the chefs of the world there's a term called tastemaker i i think that's a corny term but we're almost like that for like many different culture for the world there you go okay three terms i just want to give you give me the quick what comes to mind for you the word honor honor is uh I mean the is the best way I could describe that is probably respect, and it's like um, you know you're respectful of something or 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 people respect whatever it is you know that they honor. Okay, pride. Pride is uh, something you love or uh, you know just. Yeah, something you'd love, you'd do anything for, that you'd, you'd die for, you you push for. Why do you think L.A. people have so much pride? I, I have no idea, to be honest with you. Like, I go, I've been to 56 countries multiple times. Yeah. And I've been to many different cities and states, and, and there's just something about L.A. that we are that prideful and i don't i don't understand why or what it is because if you go to other cities you know they have 
uh, businesses, buildings, houses, history, history, yeah. food, sports. They have all the same shit that we have, but for some reason, LA is just that place oh. for that pride, you know. And and it's, I think, uh, yeah, I think our city is one of those cities of the world that is most prideful. Same. Same, and I found that out when I started doing what I'm doing. Okay, last word, and then three questions. Then, but what does loyalty mean to you? Uh, loyalty. I mean, it it's changed over the years for me. You know, it's like uh, at one point I thought it was like you know family, friends, you know loyalty. But then some uh, some people in both of those let you down at certain points. And um, it it feels like the loyalty is gone, you know, and just you wonder, like, you know, was all that a waste of time or, you know, was that uh, a learning experience or was that just part of it? You know, is that just part of life? You know, you go through all these different changes and and people and relationships and at the end of the day, I don't have no complaints, no regrets. You know, I've had, I think I've had a great life. I've gotten to see a lot of stuff. Been to a lot of cool places that made me realize all that I have here in L.A. and, and how good I, how good of a life I've had. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can't expect too much from I've learned you can't expect much from anybody you know you just got to be the best person you could be and and hope that people could be somewhat you know live by those same terms reciprocate that same okay if not Los Angeles could Estevan Oriol have become Estevan Oriol anywhere else that I'm not too sure <clears throat> because uh, like at certain points in my life I just thought I was just going to be that guy like I was going to be a construction guy yeah. you know work uh, 7 to 5 make my money you know have a six pack in the back of the truck every day with the boys after the job or or uh, you know maybe work at clubs and, and do my own club in the city and you know but i've seen all those guys come and go and burn out of that but um i think it's because of all the time i've spent you know here in the city and all the people i've met here in the city and all the different uh connections i've made in different cultures within the city yeah made me what i am today in the city you know it's like uh if I would have stayed in one part the whole way through, I would have, you know, just got stuck just here in LA. Yeah. But if I would have done it anywhere else, it would have, I think it wouldn't have worked anywhere else. I don't think, uh, I definitely don't have the type of job where I can sit on a computer and go to another city. Like everybody's like, <laughs> tell every, commute. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's yeah. like, Hey, everybody's going to Austin, Texas. They don't have to play, bro. pay taxes bro, or whatever. Come on. You know, it's a new thing building up. I'm like, I couldn't go, just go there. Like, I don't know nobody over there. Like I don't have you know, some... the nature of what you do, man, the nature of what you do. Okay underappreciated areas in Los Angeles and I know you explore but throw a couple out if you can 
um i find new stuff every like all the time even though i've been here for this many years i still learn new stuff about the city like every day and it's crazy like all the shit that you you put out there like man i'm i'm getting like cliff notes to the city you know uh, uh stuff that i didn't even know about and it's cool to either learn about new stuff yeah. of somewhere that i've been every day so all my much. life or i'm learning more about it you know so like um i would say if you live in la to go everywhere in la and to try everything in la like i know people that yeah. have never been to the beach before which is crazy the whole world comes to la to go to the beach um people that never been in the ocean like one thing going to the beach they've yeah. never been to the beach and put their feet in sand it's another thing like they've never gone in the ocean you know and like if you talk to oh fuck ah. the you know the there's like water sewer in the water I'm like gives a fuck like, sharks yeah sharks like get in there but um you know i've been to every part of the city multiple times and been to every pretty much every nook and cranny of the city is a you know and uh just why why wouldn't you you know like why wouldn't you maximize your where you live you know like go everywhere see everything like i have friends that you know like some rich friends that are like oh i don't go east of last oh Cienega. they love these fucking arbitrary borders yeah, like, dude why yes. they go why do i need to go there i have a bank right here i have a supermarket i have my cleaners Bro, they go I move a... to boise idaho and fucking yeah. go to bed at 9 p.m every night and spend your birthday at olive garden yeah if that's like, what you want to do go er like go everywhere see everything like man i've been to i don't even know if there's a part of la that i haven't been to and and like i've Man, I've been there all over the place, you know? This is what I tell people. There's always, uh, usually on my episodes, one thing to do in L.A. this week. But my favorite, truthfully, is to drive and yeah. just go fucking anywhere the freeways yeah. take you, man. Because I'll take a day like yesterday. It was so crisp and beautiful. I'm sitting there with my fucking iPhone just taking pictures out the window through my windshield of dumb shit. You know, I look at them like, oh, what the fuck was that even? But it's so beautiful. And then like... You go off an exit, and I remember like going to Boyle Heights. I'm like, I always heard of Boyle Heights, and my dad had taken me to Boyle Heights when I was a kid because he used to bring the El Tepeyac Manny's burrito for us and our neighbors, yeah, yeah. right? But I was like, I haven't been to like Boyle Heights as an adult. So I go, and you're like, holy shit, man! Like, what a community! You're walking yeah. around in Mariachi Plaza, and then San Pedro, San Pedro fucking blew my mind, you know, like yeah, with yeah. the uh, st sunken city and like yep. sandwich shop, and like, there's a historic uh, little Italy in San Pedro, and every community. I was in Huntington Park, like they're all different, and they all have something to offer. And this is like, you know, what LA is so like drive and explore, um, and I think we should do a project together. Your photos, my words, information. I mean, it's coming close to, to holiday time right now, but something we could throw together that's still a representation of what we do. What do you think? I'm just vamping here. What do you think about a calendar? What do you uh, think if we did that with your photos, my words, dates, historic Los Angeles? Like what kind of pictures of what? I've always been sorted. I was going to do an LA in a minute episode of like 
the the monuments of Los Angeles and not necessarily the obvious stuff like the Hollywood sign, but the things again, like Watts towers or even like, you know, the Thai temple out there in North Hollywood stuff. That's so LA that maybe people don't know or haven't explored firsthand, but is so representative and could only be in LA or things that you've shot and, and done. And I put my words and information behind that. Yeah, I'm down. Let's do that shit. Let's yeah, yeah. do that shit. All right. Last thing. Is there one work you're most proud of? Um, I know. It's like picking your babies, man. No, I mean, I love the the work that, I, that I've done with the... You know, the with all the homies. I love the, the lowrider culture. Uh, the LA Women Projects. Yeah, my all my hip hop stuff and uh, and you know all my traveling uh, work that I've done. Like, I mean, I I have a goal of what I want to do as far as um, you know. I have an archive of almost thirty years of photos. There's a lot of different books I want to do, and uh, I'm up to five right now. I have another five that i have already sectioned off and yeah. categorized and, and put in different like uh, those little bins you get from <laughs> office depot or whatever yeah but i have my next five projects as far as books lined up ready to go uh so you know i want to get it out there and show people the all the works that i'm most proud of and uh, yeah, I definitely want to do a, a book of my dad's work. Yeah, do a little documentary on him. And uh, I'm working on a documentary with uh, with the Buya tribe. So uh, you know, I definitely have a bunch of stuff that uh, I'm proud of and that I want to get out there. And and uh, I'm trying to get some stuff together before the year's over but i'm also next year is just, everybody says that next year is my year <laughs> i've been saying this shit for 30 years but yeah. every year i do do some pretty cool shit that i'm proud of so dude just try to turn that page and honestly man every year is a new chapter and the next chapter and i'm excited that you were here stevan oriel I'm excited to see what's coming next. A true ambassador, a trailblazer in art, hip-hop, photography, culture in Los Angeles and worldwide. Thank you so much for being here, Stevan Oriol. I very much appreciate it. You are super generous with your time. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to episode 39 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. Again, I'm very thankful for having a Stevan Oriol in the I Am Studios this is one of the preeminent artists working in Los Angeles today, working in the world today. Photographer, director, entrepreneur, historian, documentarian. I had a great time discussing LA, his origin story, and I hope you had a great time listening. For the podcast, hit that five-star rating. Leave a review if you had fun listening to this interview, and don't forget to follow and subscribe. I genuinely appreciate everybody along for the ride here at In A Minute with Evan Lovett. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.